This podcast is entitled My Sharona, and it must be important because I have had one devil of a time recording this particular podcast. Uh, first, I recorded it. It's a kind of confession of faith. It's a kind of um, expression of, of where uh, PZ finds himself after a little over two years of uh, time in the desert. It's, uh, it's a, a distillation, a kind of uh, here I stand, ich kann nicht anders, but that's not really what it is. It's simply a kind of confession of faith, but I don't want to be at all uh, posturing and saying that, or I'm very reluctant to use words like that. That sounds very pretentious and sententious. This is just called My Sharona, and it's an attempt to sort of say what I think about uh, the nature of life and God and uh, the self and uh, uh, the um, primary work labor of uh, human uh, experience and existence. Uh, but I've had a terrible time because every time I've done it, it hasn't been quite right. I've listened to it and it's sort of like when you listen to it, you know, you remember when you used to uh, inadvertently listen to a rec- your, your home recording device, you know, when you called a home and you would just wince or you listen to some talk you gave somewhere, some lecture, and it was something about the anxiety in the voice or the insecurity in the voice or the squeakiness of the voice or the bad jokes or the, the sort of of self-indulgent kind of stories that you'd retell and retell that made you just want to crawl into a hole. It's often, you know, you you used to be in, say, a preaching class and they would videotape you and and you'd see yourself and it was just, you just wanted to absolutely die. Well, um, each time I've listened to this, it hasn't quite been right. It's not been the end of the line, but it's not been good. So here I was just about to give the final cut to this and I was almost finished what I believed was the, 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 the best of the recordings that I would be able to publish on iTunes, and we had a power outage. And then I started again, because the power outage really nixes the program. You, you, it doesn't keep it. Uh, there's no f- f- fail-safe situation there. Uh, and uh, uh, then I uh, started again, and the phone rang in the middle of it, and that's easier to correct. But uh, this is uh, uh, my Sharona, a sort of statement of how I see things. And I hope it comes out because I, uh, I've written it, uh, actually, to be precise, and I feel it does reflect uh, uh, some truths or at least some perspectives, uh, some responses to uh, bitter experience, life, in other words, regular life. I don't believe that life is, in fact, uh, uh, bitter and the sweet. There is bitter and there is sweet, but overall, I think the grounds for disillusionment in attached living and engaged, passionate living, uh, the grounds for disillusion rest primarily in the fact of physical death. In other words, the fact that there's an end to it all and that everyone you love is on the way out from the very beginning and that birth is is uh, is the prelude to extinction or death or at least uh, death as far as we know it and certainly death of those people to whom you are attached by love possessed. Those people you attempt to possess who will leave you and die a.k.a. Citizen Kane a.k.a. every Edgar Allan Poe story etc. etc. This means that life fundamentally is, as Bishop Angus Dunn of Washington is famously believed to have said to everyone's surprise, and no one ever talked about it after it was reported. His last words were supposedly uh, Bishop Dunn, whom I knew, actually, long, long, long ago, it seems. Life is tragic. Now, a thesis one of four theses. You have to disidentify with, detach from, everything 
and everyone. This is what death forces you to do, but you need to do it earlier, before you die physically, in order to have a happy life. Experience constantly makes you need to do this. You need to detach from yourself. Now that is thesis one, and it's an attempt to express the fact that that uh, that the 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 core a problem of of, uh, of of human relationships is attachment to things and people which are by nature the case not enduring, and therefore by the nature of dissolution and constant flux, are, are inevitably disappointing and let you down. Whether it's your daughter or whether it's your mother, whether it's your father or whether it's your son, whether it's your lover, your partner, your wife, your husband, uh, these uh, are all, uh, that song Silvio, I immediately think of Silvio, that incredible song by uh, Bob Dylan. Go and listen to that. It's all about detachment and uh, detaching from things which don't uh, last. I love Bob Dylan. And uh, um, experience by taking away uh, the things you have attached uh, to in a childish way. Experience constantly makes you need to do this. And so you detach from, the you might call this the kind of false self or the ego. Um, you have to detach from your ego. You have to find out that there's a bigger self than just your ego self. And when you stand apart from it, and that's usually accomplished through what... Some traditions call meditation. I think that's unarguable, actually, that meditation is that which allows you to detach. And I won't go into the details on meditation. I think I did that in a podcast called I Learn to Yodel, quoting from Joe Meek. May he rest forever in peace. Um, detachment from your false attaching self, which happens at death. And I've seen it happen many, many, many times. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross told us this about death, but she could have told us it about life. The living process is the dying process. It involves a tremendous amount of shock, anger, denial, bargaining, and finally acceptance. And only acceptance gives peace, even in life. Well, um... You need to detach from yourself. And when you do, when you detach from the ego, you find that there is this kind of big, broad love. This, uh, it's going to sound, um, it can only sound a little lame because it's too big for me to express here in words. It can only sound a little lame. But uh, my experience has uh, helped me to understand, and I didn't knew this instinctively long ago, that love uh, unites others to us when we love and they love. You look into a sufferer's eyes, uh, someone who is suffering from a complaint or a victimization, a condition, a circumstance, or a disappointment or a loss that you can connect with in your life, and you connect with them. What is connecting you is really the true self. It's the absolute. It's the one. It's reality. You are connecting with the poor person who lives under the shadow of depression in that man's skin, walk a mile in my shoes as it is in your skin. And that is the true self-connecting. This happens in sexual love, uh, most emphatically, but it also happens in all sorts of love. Uh, loving relationships, sympathy, uh, compassion, empathy. These are all ways of saying that we are connecting with that in the other, which is like us, which is ultimately an aspiration to be loved and to love.
Doesn't this, you know, again, it sounds lame, but this is, uh, for what it's worth, I guess what I've come up with may be lame for you, but it's really not because in my experience, this holds up. As I listened and disqualified my other recordings of my Sharona, the trouble was they didn't really stand. There was always something that I was saying that I didn't really believe or didn't really speak for what I was attempting to convey and feel. And uh, so far, so good in this uh, fifth or sixth uh, try at my Sharona. And I'm going to read thesis two. In detaching from yourself and from everything and anyone, all of whom are in the process of flux and dissolution in the Heraclitean river of dependent arisings. Now that's, I just gave that out of hand. Here's the thesis. In doing so, you inevitably make contact with or come into contact with God. Who is your true self? And I put that in capital T and capital L, dash S, dash Love action, in quotes, the Human League. That's a reference to a song that Phil Oakey wrote that I happen to love on their first album entitled Dare. Love action, paren, I believe in love by Phil Oakey and Human League. This is your true self, or, I say, the power of love, quoting here from Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Now, let it be said right now that Mary and I and Craig Siebert, who is long deceased, uh, may he rest forever in loving peace and loved peace, and uh, Craig's wife uh, uh, at that uh, time before he died, Diana, we, Mary, Diana, Craig, uh, and I, attended Frankie Goes to Hollywood's first New York City concert at the Ritz downtown. The Power of Love. And see the video by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. You know what it is, the video? I think it's 1983, but it may be 1984, but not much later. Maybe 1985 at the latest. Probably, anyway. It's of the nativity. It's a Christmas video of Frankie Holly Johnson Goes to Hollywood and all his uh, his partners and friends singing an ode of the power of love as expressed in the visitation of the three wise men the epiphany of the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles in the visit of the three wise men to the barn manger cave in Bethlehem. It's an amazing Christmas pageant video by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Anyway, when you detach, you make contact with. When you detach from the false uh, ego, you make contact with or come into contact with God who is your true self. Love action, the human league, the power of love. Frankie Goes to Hollywood. You could even call it with a capital R, reality. There are many words for it. The absolute, the one. I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, as a PS, the discussion of the Somerset Maugham character with Larry Darrell in chapter 6 of The Razor's Edge when they talk about the absolute. Now, this is what I have come to believe, that when you detach from all the things to which you attach and you attempt to possess and the things which possess you and attach to you, you come into contact with the universal as opposed to the, the concrete, and that is God. So in this particular point of view, I'm not a great believer in the concretization of life. I'm much more a believer in the monistic love energy of Phil Oakey and life. And that's what I see when I marry. I used to laugh. I seem to have a preternatural affinity with mentally ill people. When very early on in our ministry, I seemed to always be involved uh, pastorally directly with people who were mentally ill, who were borderline, marginal, whatever the word is called, schizophrenic, and uh, 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 clinically depressed. And uh, the only thing I could say is that it must all be in me. It just is just, it, uh, I'm still 
still able to function apparently in the ministry, but uh, these people, uh, male, female, old, young, uh, seem to draw something out of me. Virtue, as the old King James said, of the power that we read about in the New Testament. Something about the virtue, the power of love, the power of love. It keeps the vampires of keeps the vampires away and the hooded claw. Remember that? The hooded claw. Frankie goes to Hollywood. Frankie goes to Hollywood was fabulous. They almost sort of were on the verge of changing music forever, but they didn't. In any event, um, the absolute and the one, which is love. Thesis three. In the remaining now of human existence in this world, you have to merge with the things to which you are averse. Quote, assimilate the negativity, end of quote. And that's a phrase that comes from Dr. Frank Lake, who was a mentor and teacher of mine uh, back in the early 70s and then again in the late 70s in Nottingham. You have to assimilate the negativity in order to lessen their power over you, in order to live with them at all. Merging with them is the only tool you have that works to not be driven to despair by the bad feelings you have in your life. Now, there's one more paragraph in Thesis 3, which is about life now. The dynamic of human existence now, which the primary work of, you know, um, the, the great work of which, the task of which is to assimilate the negativity for the sake of a happy life. Merging, I write at the conclusion of Thesis 3, which I've written for this podcast, My Sharona. Merging, which is another word for compassion in this context, is the vehicle for happiness when you are living in the territory between Thesis 1, about detaching, and Thesis 2, about um, coming into contact with the real self, reality, love, God, which is that period between thesis one and thesis two, most of your adult life. Well, um, this is, uh, you know, uh, uh, let me say something about Christians and people. You pick up a system like Christianity. Someone has a conversion experience, and it's very real. And you go to Bible studies. And we used to note that, that it was wonderful, the Christian life uh, with many people I love and know to this day. Uh, but uh, what would happen is we always used to have a joke. So-and-so goes to two Bible studies a, a, a week and loves the Lord, and it's her whole life unless it actually touches her life. You know, or he is, he is just all about uh, his faith at this point in his life, and it's a wonderful thing to behold, unless it actually touches some predisposed pattern, and then he's out of there. Uh, this would account for the compartmentalization of many Christian people who are then accused of hypocrisy. What we found is that um, religion, uh, it can be anything, was great for a lot of people, just as... Um, politics of one sort, a partisan views about an aesthetic question, or partisan views about a social question, or a values question, or some person. Uh, you take the part of Gaddafi, or you hate Gaddafi, but um, the, uh, if it actually touches your actual desires, what the prayer book used to call concupiscence, forget it. It has no impact at all, and that accounts for the compartmentalization of people. So they're able to say one thing and do something else because there's no bridge between the, the real person who's usually in hiding out from some threat within himself or himself and the, the ideological view which has appealed to a part of the person. Now, what this does, you assimilate the negativity. The wall comes down because instead of running from something, you accept it, you have mercy on it, you assimilate it, you merge with it, you, you walk towards it. This is the opposite of, my, of Eckhart, Eckhart, Tolle, Eckhart, Eckhart Tolle when he says uh, uh, what you resist persists. The converse of that 
that is what you merge with doesn't persist. Now, the classic example for me, I had a terrible problem with airport anxiety. Not crashing. I didn't care about that. That was not the point of the anxiety. The anxiety was just all the BS that you had at airports. And I was constantly, I felt like the man in a Rudyard Kipling story, the name of which escapes me right now, who said that the entire purpose of the British rail system was, had been, the British rail system writes this uh, sort of reflective uh, hero in a Kipling short story, uh, was designed entirely to crush my life. The entire purpose of rail travel was to stymie, uh, frustrate, delay, and destroy my plans. Uh, it had come into existence to uh, uh, attack uh, my uh, prerogatives of freedom. And I had that idea about airports. Uh, everything about it, delays, uh, lost bags, mostly delays, security, um, missing uh, connecting flights, having to spend the night once at the Henry VIII airport motel with a Henry VIII motif from the sort of late 70s, right out of uh, Friday Night Lights. But that was in the, in the 90s. I had a whole group of people and we had to spend the night on couches in the Renaissance room of the Henry VIII motel at the uh, St. Louis International Airport. My golly. Well, that's, you see what I'm saying? When I finally had a kind of breakdown, it was in Pensacola. And I was stranded in Pensacola after a speech or a sermon, and uh, the weather had grounded the flight, and I was going to miss the flight back. And I was just, I had a complete meltdown. And at that point, I went into therapy. Thank God I went into therapy within a week because I I had a breakdown over airport security. And when this particular therapist very brilliantly and very shockingly said, what you need to do is you need to merge with the airplane. You need to merge with everything about the airplane that you find grotesque and anxiety-driving and engendering, and you have to go towards the maintenance man who you see at the, just before the flight's about to take off because they have to fix the coffee um, plastic uh, coffee tray container in the 87th pew in the back, so the flight is delayed for 50 minutes, so the seat that no one will sit in has to have a new coffee container plastic thing in, so you miss your flight to San Francisco and you're entire week is destroyed. Now see, I'm in touch with that, with my anxiety when I tell you that story. And he said, you have to merge with that anxiety. You have to feel where it is in your body and you have to go right towards it. And of course, natürlich, uh, when I did, bien sûr, uh, I, um, the feeling diminished. Didn't completely go away. Still is there. But it's diminished markedly. I remember he told me this fellow, you know, I can cure you. He said, this, this approach will cure that. Well, he was basically right. It cured me 75%, and that's saying something. Something that causes you to have a nervous breakdown in your, in your 50s, and you're cured of it 75%. Well, that's pretty, uh, those are high odds in your 50s. So um, merging, which is another word for what Christians call, rightly, forgiveness, absolution, mercy, and compassion. Because you have mercy on the negative. You have mercy on the criminal. You have mercy on the predator. You have mercy on that part of you which you cannot stand. You have mercy on that part of you which is ugly or self-serving or malicious or cruel or angry or resentful or bitter or constantly or depressed or sleepy, you know, or just darn uh, in a uh, messy, disorganized, unable to move, paralyzed, uh, pusillanimous, uh, laid all the time. All these things, mendacious, lying, all those things, you merge with them, and it's the vehicle for happiness when you were living in life. 
Thesis four. I want this to be crisp, and I'm feeling a little better now. I hope the power doesn't go out, and I certainly hope I don't get a phone call in the middle of it, which is famous last words. Thesis four. I've said what thesis one is about detaching. I've thesis two coming into contact with God, who is the organizing, living, elan vital, virility, strength, power of love, which is in everyone, and that is what perjures after we die. That is what we want to be merged with. And then in practical living, mercy, this is a little bit, you'll see it in the wonderful Bob Dylan song, I think I mentioned it, um, Sirmio, Sirmio, Silvio, when uh, there's something about merging that is absolutely powerful. I, I just, I had that association. But you, um, thesis three, you, you have mercy on those parts of your life and especially on your own inwardness, which are causing you terrible crise d'angoisse and great anguish within yourself and torture over your own things that you either hate, detest in others, most of all, and certainly in yourself. And now the last of these theses. This is not exhaust the philosophical framework of human experience or a cosmic life or life in this world, but this is what I want to say as my Sharona of faith, not my confession of faith. That sounds totally um, postured and attitudinizing. It's my Sharona of faith. Thesis four. The closest place you come in this life, and therefore in this world, to being one with your true self, is the world of the child, capital C. With me, it is the famous monsters of filmland, child. My child of the 10 and 11-year-old imagination. My child of Saturday matinees at the Calvert Theater in Upper Wisconsin Avenue. Um, Washington, D.C. The child of Saturday matinees at the Calvert Theater when I was a little kid and used to go to these every Saturday. And the child of Shock Theater, WTOP9. That was the station in Washington that showed Universal Horror Movies late Saturday nights to the, to the horror of our mothers who, wanted, who made us get up and go to church. This world of the child the child is the world observed unerringly in the movie Super 8. Now, I've written about Super 8 recently, and I'm, I'm glad of what I wrote. And uh, I won't talk about Super 8, except if you want to understand the world of the child. Uh, it, 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 it's been beautifully expressed in many films. Uh, you can see it in, uh, what is it, uh, Poil de Carotte, Carrot Top, the wonderful, is it Jean de Vivier? Someone like that movie, a silent movie from the late 20s. Um, uh, about um, the world of the child. There are many uh, child worlds have been beautifully um, portrayed in film, not to mention literature. David Copperfield. Just read the first chapters of David Copperfield, and it's perfect. Oliver Twist, even, with all its sentimentality. Almost anything Dickens ever wrote. But um, for, me, for me now, Super 8, the J.J. Abrams film, where the four kids and the... Um, one, their, their girl, Alice, are uh, unerringly observed in the non-mediated and completely present uh, character of their emotional reactions and responses to life. For me, it's the famous monsters of Filmland, child of the late 50s and early 60s, and the 
the little boy who would go see the Colossus of New York and the Alligator People and the Conquest of Space and the Crawling Eye at the Calvert Theater, which no longer exists, and it's terrible. It's like they, it's like they, they took a wrecking ball to my life. And the Shock Theater, which is long since gone. Now we just go and get, um, what is it, Stephen Summers' Legacy Editions of Universal Horror Films, way overpriced, but in a way money can't buy. House of Dracula, 1945. Money can't buy House of Dracula, Earl C. Kenton masterpiece of 1945 with John Carradine and Glenn Strange, who, by the way, I found out his father, Glenn Strange, who played Frankenstein in the later uh, Universal Horror Cycle, um, his father was a clergyman in Texas. I think that's wonderful. That just doesn't that make you want to become a minister, so you could produce a Glenn Strange to play uh, Frankenstein, not to mention the bartender in Gunsmoke. Anyway, Chalk Theater, WTOP nine. But what I'm trying to say is, you need to think about this. I'm talking to you now. You are the person who has an inward child. We make light of that phrase, the inner child, but that is uh, that is what I really um, want to invite you. You see, the child is closer to the womb. The closer you get to the womb, the closer you get to the ultimate merging off world, off the false self, to the true self of ultimate uh, pervasive love that is the energy of the entire universe and cosmos and world, which is God. So the closer you get to the child, the closer you get to the 10-year-old, and basically most people believe that for the boys, it's, a, it's the 11-year-old boy, the 10 and 11-year-old boy, it's before puberty, is the absolute locus classicus, the S-I-T-E, uh, the uh, the the actual archaeological substratum of the deepest place close to the child. Now, for girls, it'll be different, and you'll have to advise me. It's maybe a 12-year-old girl, maybe a 6-year-old girl, maybe a 9-year-old girl, but it's the child we're talking about. And when you're close to the child, uh, and I may even have it wrong for women. I, I can't speak for that, but I know myself, and I know many male children who are a lot older than me, a lot older than me. But um, he's got all the time in the world. Remember that great line from Alan Young at the end of The Time Machine by George Powell. Stay in touch with your child, my dear. Stay in touch with your child. Make an active effort because that is where the reality of life is. I think I said this the other day. I was out in the, the lake uh, at our little cottage uh, here in central Florida with uh, my grandson, Thomas, and we were having a blast. He's uh, uh, soon to be three, and we were having an absolute blast playing monster games and Buzz Lightyear games and Godzilla games and dinosaur games and <clears throat> all sorts of <clears throat> funny swimming games in this beautiful clear, warm, shallow water, which is clean as a whistle out there, and having a blast. And then the guy came from Bright House Network to do something to the modem in the little cottage and give us some kind of slightly um, amplified or upgraded phone service. And he had all these checkoff lists, and it was great. I mean, I was glad he was there, and we expected him. And I talked, and he had all this question and that question, and I signed a lot of forms. And I began to, to get to, to involved with his being there. I mean, there were a lot of little things I had to show him about where things were, which I didn't really know. What is... Uh what does John Goodman say in uh, Matinee, the wonderful Joe Dante film, which is the high point of, 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 uh, of Joe Dante's work, in my opinion, although there are many good films there, wonderful films. But John Goodman says to the little boy who loves monster movies and famous monsters of film land, he said, kid, he said, just remember, you think you want to be an adult one day, but adults are making up every step of the way. Adults, we adults are making it up every step of the way. Well, I realized that uh, talking to this um, repairman or serviceman from Bright House Network was in fact totally about nothing. 
It was a sort of sense of urgency about nothing. And kept he, he had the wrong cell phone, and then he had to call my wife, and then she had to get a, a permission from a, a relative, and then we had to do something else. Then we had to reschedule, but then he came back. And, you know, this was called absolute falsehood. This was completely ridiculous. The real life for me was playing monsters and pterodactyl with my three-year-old. Now, that's easy to say. That sounds very sentimental, you know. L'art d'être grand-père by Victor Hugo. The art of being a grandfather, you know. All the fun and none of the responsibility. Well, yes, but the reality was what I will remember is the intrusion of nothing. I mean, who gives a... <laughs> what is that? Uh, anyway, I just had a slightly vulgar association, but who who really uh, is going to care about a slightly upgraded telephone service at a, a, a lakeside cottage in about five minutes as opposed to a once-in-a-year and once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to have a blast with an entirely infectiously happy, delightful, funny, imaginative, gifted little boy playing dinosaurs, pterodactyls, and monsters and Buzz Lightyear to infinity and beyond, this little boy runs up and down like 50 times. And you say, what could possibly compare with the world of the child? That's the reality. The reality of life. The reality of light, love, life, light, love, light, and uh, uh, hope, and uh, that which is lasting, and that which is eternal, and that which never goes away, that which never ends. Uh, that is what was happening with that little boy and his grandfather. Not uh, a, uh, uh, entirely ephemeral and entirely to be forgotten except as a negative distraction uh, intervention of, a, uh, of, of the repair process of an upgraded telephone. So uh, I've told you what I think. And uh, someone said recently to me that your life's work is to ask the question, who am I and who is God? via this mindful practice, which this particular person, that's a phrase, which simply means by keeping your eyes open. If your body is telling you something uh, of anxiety, let you know that that's what it is. If you're terribly upset at someone for some mental reason, but you're emotionally really upset at someone quite different, uh, be aware of that. So don't transfer something that is core into something silly and not important. Um, don't get mad at her because you're really mad at him with a real <laughs> bone to pick. Um, uh, don't target the wrong emotions. Uh, don't don't uh, keep a watch over what's really happening in your volcanic persona so that you can, in fact, come to see it for what it is, which is a constantly changing my ever-changing moods by style counsel. The great great, great group of the 80s who did a plenty of songs about things that have changed, like the Tories. I mean, if I hear one more Style Council song about the Tories and Margaret Thatcher and John Major and everything that's, and, and what, what conservative governments are, which are no longer exist, by the way. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, Tony Blair is I mean, when you most of the songs by Style Council which deal with uh, the Tory government won't, don't have any meaning anymore because there is no Tory government of that kind at this point. Uh, they, they, they're fascinating Fashionable. That maybe yes, you could say it applies to today. But um, twenty years ago, uh, the conditions which they were writing their political songs have so changed that those songs seem fatuous and unimportant and uninteresting when you hear them now. They don't rivet you. But the song by the Style Council called "You're the Best Thing That Ever Happened" 
and their great one, which is my ever-changing moods. That is for the ages, and that defines the human condition. My ever-changing moods from which I need to detach to come into contact with the power of love. Bless you, Holly Johnson. The assimilation of negativity, which is to be directly connected with imputation and simul justus et peccator, in historic Protestant theology, you may not care, but that's just a fact, and I throw that out for those who, who do care, and that the one way to get rid of the thing that is most upsetting you is to not resist it, but to assimilate it. Oh, damn. And finally, the closest place you come in this life, uh, the closer you get to the true self, is the world of the child. Thank you very much, and that is my now, I believe, completed recording of the final cut of my Sharona.